You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know of any way that we can improve our content for you, the listener, drop us a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. Hidden History is sponsored by Bulletin Technologies, LLC, and the Alexandria Initiative. To learn about how you can fly for a fraction of the cost of commercial, visit bulletinflights.com. Tune into future episodes to hear all about the exciting new educational tech being developed by Alexandria. To catch up on all our past episodes and hear new ones every Wednesday, head on over to hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. This is part two in our three-part series on the rise and fall of Robert Moses. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 21, Bob the Builder, part two. One cannot paint an accurate picture of the life and times of Robert Moses without first talking about the strongly influential forces in his own family. Robert was the older of two sons born to Bella and Emmanuel Moses. Paul Moses was to eke out his entire life in squalor while his brother lived like a king. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Emmanuel Moses was a successful department store owner described as gentle and kind, while Bella was the domineering daughter of a wealthy socialite. By all accounts, Bella bullied her husband, and like her son, was famous for her stubbornness. When she decided that the social scene of New Haven was significantly below a woman of her place, the Moses family uprooted and moved to New York. Emmanuel was forced to sell his department store and retire early. Now the Moseses were elite members of New York's Jewish community, neighbors to the likes of the Seligmans and the Guggenheims, so Bella soon found something new to occupy her time. Madison House Madison House was, and still is, a settlement house, a non-profit that, among other things, helps fresh immigrants adjust to their new country. Bella Moses became a significant contributor and member of the Madison House Board, using her position to care for the throngs of new Jewish immigrants that many older, well-established immigrant families saw as an embarrassment and threat to their image. Of all her duties at the Settlement House, she was most interested by far in physical construction and design, everything from basketball courts to summer camps. Bella Moses came prepared to every meeting with detailed plans about how the project would look, function, and be built. The other members of the board soon learned that these were not suggested plans. They were Bella's plans, and they were going to be done. As her two sons grew older, one of them was increasingly becoming her favorite, and she did little to hide it. After all, Robert Moses was Bella Moses' son. He returned to New Haven years later, matriculating to the Yale class of 1909. Moses blossomed at school. Though he rarely, if ever, read for class, he was continually working through a massive stack of books on his desk on things that simply interested him. He was brilliant, 
and eventually the rest of his class began to take notice, but he had seemingly known it all along. He began to write poetry that was published in Yale literary magazines. Here's one of his original pieces. Fair night, fair night, afar the day has fled. Fair night, fair night, a torch divine o'erhead. God's goodness flames eternal and abides. Our errant footsteps keeps and watching guides. Fair night, fair night. Tomorrow, but is the morrow sure? Tomorrow, the lashes slumber lure. Ah, shall we greet the dawning day? Perchance in vain we longing say, Tomorrow. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Robert Moses, the poet, but this and poems like this got him noticed in campus literary circles. He seemed to be an idealistic crusader for beauty, honesty, and truth. But he wasn't strictly an idealist. Bella's strategic pragmatism rang strongly through his veins, best seen in his battle against Yale football god Walter Camp. Camp, known as the father of American football, was preventing Yale athletics from spending anything on the so-called minor sports, like swimming, wrestling, baseball, and hockey. He wanted every cent for a new football stadium. Robert Moses, one of the best swimmers on the neglected team, understandably was not a fan of this policy. So he banded all of the minor sports teams together into a single association that could fundraise from alumni effectively and distribute money on the basis of team need. Walter Camp, accustomed to approaching alumni for football donations, understandably was not a fan of this organization. When Camp and the administration made thinly veiled threats against Moses, he published them in the Yale Current and the Yale Daily News. Eventually, Camp gave up the fight. If the Minor Sports Association could raise $3,200 of its $3,500 goal, Yale Athletics would donate the remaining $300. Robert Moses had won, and it made him look invincible. Yet, for all the notability that he gained through his campus heroics, he was barred from prestigious clubs and societies due to his Jewish heritage. Moses was one of the six Jewish students in the class of 1909 who were labeled as Hebrews and considered a miscellaneous denomination by the school's blue book. In what was at that point their almost three-quarter century history, None of Yale's storied associations had ever admitted a Jew, and they weren't about to start with him. Upon his arrival, Yale had billed itself as a, quote, democracy of talent. By the time of his graduation, Robert Moses had long learned that that was not true. He continued his postgraduate education at Oxford University, enamored with the British civil service and life among Britain's elite. Moses was convinced that the only way to fix the corruption rampant throughout American government was to adopt the British system. Scores of low-level clerical workers, supervised by an exclusive coterie of highly educated graduates from only the best universities. <laughs> 
for America. He wanted a civil service administration controlled only by the graduates of the Ivy Leagues, but more specifically, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. All of the other Ivies, Moses thought, were not nearly of the same caliber. In 1914, while studying at Columbia, Moses finished and published his thesis, The Civil Service of Great Britain, a whopping 324 pages of astounding detail on British civil function. In some circles, Moses started to be recognized as one of the most knowledgeable people on the civil service. That knowledge, coupled with his mother's influence, helped him land a junior staffer position at the idealistic good government organization, the Bureau of Municipal Research. The Bureau itself was the zenith of pre-World War I optimism. It recommended a number of reforms to improve government and quash Tammany Hall, including such concepts as an itemized budget. That's right. At the turn of the century, it was practically unheard of for a city to have a formal budget. Rather, each department requested a lump sum, which was cut by a fixed percentage. As you can imagine, such a system invites abuse. After several borough presidents refused to disclose their complete financial records, the Bureau went after what was available. The details of construction contracts were matter of public record, so they sent young staffers, including Moses, around to construction sites to count supplies and compare them against what had been paid for. They discovered that the government had paid for hundreds of thousands of dollars in supplies that had never been delivered. There was outrage in the papers. A borough president was ousted, and the Bureau of Municipal Research basked in its first substantial victory. Yet, as his co-workers were spending more and more time counting bags of concrete, Robert Moses was spending more and more time at City Hall talking with public officials who were doing what he called, quote, real work. After twisting the arm of his superiors, he was promoted to a full-time staffer. At the age of 25, he was finally done his formal education. Moses used this newfound power within the Bureau to advocate for his ideal government reform. It came in the form of the efficiency rating a standardization system for all city employees that would assign a precise numerical grade based on ratings from their supervisor. They would be assessed on every aspect of their job, including their personality, which would be weighted accordingly. Only if the employee scored above a certain number could they receive promotions or raises. Those who scored too low would receive demotions and pay cuts and after a certain point, the employee would have to take a comprehensive exam in order to get a raise. In 1915, there were 50,000 municipal jobs in New York, from street sweepers to typists to drawbridge operators, and the vast majority of those employees owed their job to Tammany Hall. Patronage was their most powerful tool. If implemented, Robert Moses' system would tear out the heart of the Tammany Tiger. The sitting mayor, John Poray Mitchell, 
gave his approval to begin the deployment of the system and hailed it as the future of civil service. In 1915, Moses was a naive crusader for government reform, and Tammany Hall would use it to destroy him. With shockingly good timing, a reporter just happened to come across a copy of Moses' doctoral thesis, and it was not well received. Those 50,000 employees, and many more New Yorkers, saw Moses as an unapologetic elitist, which wasn't entirely untrue. Tammany Ward bosses rallied public opinion against him, and with the public no longer on his side, and after a series of arduous civil service exemption hearings, when the time came for Mayor Mitchell to support the initiative, he remained silent. John Puroy Mitchell lost re-election in 1917, and in a clean sweep by Tammany Hall, was replaced by John Francis Red Mike Hyland. Hyland restructured the government of the city to include everyone but Robert Moses. He was forced to return to the Bureau of Municipal Research and beg for his job back. The salary was a pittance, and with a wife and two young girls to provide for, Moses was desperate. It seemed like the end of his career in government. And then he got a phone call. Bell Moskowitz, not to be confused with Bella Moses, was the closest advisor to the new governor, a Tammany man, Alfred Emanuel Smith, who was elected in the first New York gubernatorial election where women could vote. Bell Moskowitz was responsible for getting him the women's vote. She was an unparalleled political strategist, wife of reformer Henry Moskowitz, who Moses knew from his days at the Bureau. Governor Smith trusted her completely, and when he announced that he was going to assemble a commission to reorganize the state government, Bell Moskowitz was in charge of selecting its chief of staff, who in turn would select the 50 members of the commission. She asked Robert Moses if he would be interested in the position. Robert Moses said yes. Over the coming months, Moskowitz trained Moses in the art of practical politics, a thing he used to hate. And within six months, Bell had practically given him the reins of the entire commission. With Moses at the helm, they performed a sweeping audit of the state governmental structure and found that there existed 187 separate state bureaus, departments, and committees. Their functions had a ridiculous amount of overlap. For example, taxes were collected by seven different state agencies. Soon enough, the Republican powers in the state legislature, eager to thwart the reorganization efforts of Governor Smith, refused to appropriate the funds to let the commission function. In July 1919, the private contributions that had been sustaining their work dried up and Moses was forced to begin firing employees. By the end of summer, all 50 staffers were gone, and the report was nowhere near done. Moses was forced to finish it himself, and in October 1919, the report of the Reconstruction Commission to Governor Alfred E. Smith 
on the retrenchment and reorganization in the state government was finished. Coming in at 419 pages, Moses claimed that he had written or rewritten every word. This, it turns out, was not true, but it didn't stop him from claiming it. Among its most important recommendations were the consolidation of those 187 departments into 16, the establishment of an executive budget that consisted of those departments submitting requests to the governor's office, and the extension of the governor's term from two years to four. All three of these items would require their own constitutional amendment, which needed to be voted on by the current legislature, ratified by another legislature in a different year, and finally be approved by the people of New York in a referendum. The budget and term extension amendments did not pass a vote, but Moses held on to hopes that his comprehensive reform package could be passed during Smith's next term with the backing of a Democratic legislature. In 1920, Al Smith lost re-election. There would be no second consecutive term. The new governor, Nathan Miller, kept the proposals in committee. Eventually, the group formed by Bell Moskowitz and ran by Robert Moses was disbanded. He was once again looking for a job. Eventually, he found one in another good government organization, the New York State Association, and for years he sat in his tiny cubicle and cultivated his relationship with Al Smith. Smith was no fan of good government reformists. In fact, he hated them. He was a party man whose vote ultimately belonged to Tammany Hall. He saw those moral crusaders as starry-eyed idealists who never produced results. Al Smith hated reformers, but he loved Robert Moses, who more and more frequently walked home with him and joined his family for dinner. Smith was a master politician and had seen firsthand the inefficiencies of government during his days as a state assemblyman. He made practical political considerations, compromised on issues to make progress in the legislature. He traded vote for vote and had hundreds of political tricks up his sleeve. In short, he was everything that Robert Moses had sworn to hate. Robert Moses loved Al Smith. Given this, it seems impossible that these two men could have had any affection for each other. In order for Smith to love a man he should have despised, and vice versa, Robert Moses must have been very different from when he had first entered the civil service. Indeed he was. Robert Moses had changed. So on January 2nd, 1923, when Alfred E. Smith once again assumed the role of governor of New York, in what would be the second of four terms, Moses had a place right by his side. Now, for the first time, Robert Moses had power. 
he ascended into the governor's inner circle. He knew seemingly every fact about the function of the state government, every historical precedent set by previous legislation, and endless ways to phrase the language in a bill to make it seem completely benign. It earned him the nickname the best bill drafter in Albany. And as he knelt on the floor of the legislature and whispered answers into the ears of Democrats eager to destroy their opponents, his knowledge couldn't have been more apparent. He showed absolute loyalty to the governor, and in turn, Smith rewarded him with new responsibilities, with more power. He was placed in charge of reforming the prison system in order to make sentences more rehabilitative. He did it. He had prisons make and sell goods and pay the inmates for their labor, so now you know who we have to thank for that one. He was placed in charge of eliminating the thousands of railgrade crossings, which had been the bane of public works departments for decades and caused hundreds of deaths per year. He did it. In order to repay him for his loyalty and work, Governor Smith continually offered Moses high-paying jobs with low workloads. He consistently turned them down. He didn't want anything, he said. And he continued with this line, until one day, he did. This has been part two in our three-part series on the rise and fall of Robert Moses. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in to next week's episode to hear the exciting climax of our story, to learn how Robert Moses spent 43 years building his power, celebrity, and influence, and then lost it all in the blink of an eye. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.